Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51, Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Brian Moritz. Today's guest is Jeff DeVeronica from the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Jeff DeVeronica, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, especially this time of year for you. We're recording this the first week of June, which for anybody who's ever covered high school sports in New York, <laughs> you'll know what uh, what that this is sectional time for all the spring sports. So uh, I appreciate you doing that. So what's so as just an example, like what does this week look like for you work wise trying to cover all of this? Well, in addition to the layer of covering games, and we have ten teams still alive for state championships. Uh, in multiple sports, and then we have the state track championships, and none of the, only one of these sets of games is locally. They're all out of state, whether it be Syracuse or Binghamton or Glens Falls. Um, we pick our all greater Rochester teams this week too, so we're we're picking the best kids in all eight different sports in the spring, and then getting our uh, once we pick them, uh, we get our our information out to our coaches to let the kids know about when we're having them come in for pictures and. Uh, AGR, I'll get a Rochester, is one of the things we do every year to kind of honors the best kids in every sport from the entire region, not just in our immediate area. It's, it's like our seven-county coverage area. So it's it's really kind of a brand that's uh, developed a lot over the last really four or five decades, and now we do it for just about every sport. Uh, when, when I started here about 20 years ago, all we did it was for football, girls and boys soccer, and girls and boys basketball. Now – just in the winter alone, we have 14 different uh, sports that we honor kids Jeez. in. So, yeah, it's a uh, so it's been, it's it's a big project, and uh, uh, we know people love it, so that's why we do it. And uh, but no, there's still lots of games to be played. I'll, I think I'm going to be covering some some baseball on Friday evening, and then we'll see what happens with lacrosse. I might end up uh, covering some lacrosse on Saturday. So the versatility definitely kicks in. I, 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 it may be just my, my selective memory, but from my high school days when I was a reporter, it always felt like for some reason spring sectionals were always way crazier than uh, basketball and then winter sectionals or uh, fall sectionals. Do you find that to be true too? Uh, I don't know. It seems like there's, there's – again, there's more sports in the winter. Um, spring it might seem a little crazy because people are just it's come, the school year is coming to an end um, I know that a lot of teachers and coaches shut down so we're always trying to get information out of them before they kind of pack in for the season so um, more so for me it's always been kind of basketball but then that also might go back to me trying to juggle Syracuse basketball coverage with high school coverage too so that might be part of it I know that no longer covering the Rochester Rhinos this year um and as we've backed down our coverage the last few years, it's made me able – I've been able to focus more on high schools uh, without kind of having to split my attention all over the place. It's, it's interesting to me because we uh, – I haven't had many high school sports reporters on this podcast. I had a lot of professional writers, a lot of college sports writers. Um, and and I, I, I always find like the – and we've talked before about the profession, but I find that split and the big difference between high school sports – covering high school sports and covering pro and college sports. Like there, there are similarities, but there's also, there's also a really, really big difference I've found. 
uh, between how you co- in between the coverage of high school sports and coverage of college and pro sports. And kind of was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that from your perspective. I mean, do you do you see that difference? I mean, is there a difference in how you cover it and in, in the not just the tone of coverage, but what you're covering, how you're doing it? Just kind of the 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 idea of covering high school sports a, 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 as your main beat. Kind of you know what's that? How do you approach that? You have to be kind of, you have to spread the coverage around a bit. You have to be a little more equitable and, you know, yeah, you're going to cover your big ticket, big ticket items like a football game on a Friday night, but you can't ignore the, the cross country and, the, and the, the track and fields and the bowling and the tennis and the golf uh, and soccer. We try to spread it around as best you can. And, and you certainly don't want to be covering the same school over and over again. If you're in a big coverage area, wherever we Whatever market you're in, you know, I remember my first job down in Southern Ohio. We had 13 schools in our coverage area. We certainly were going to cover the same one every single Friday night. Or if you were uh, at one school on a Tuesday night covering a basketball game, you most certainly would be at a different school uh, on Friday night. So you try to not to, again, as the season separates itself and, and the good teams kind of show their worth, you might focus on some better teams later on in the season. But there's a feeling out process and uh, trying to be a little more equitable in your coverage uh, if you're a sports editor or a sports writer at a smaller publication or even at a bigger news uh, a city like ours and certainly even in bigger cities that they try to spread it around a little bit but then again then again toward the end of the season the, uh, there's the haves and the have-nots and obviously the haves are going to get more coverage attention i think the biggest difference brian is really in, in the sensitivity to what you show and how you how you you cover certain games mm-hmm. i mean if, if a if a Syracuse basketball player misses a free throw to end the game, to lose the game, obviously that player's name is going to be in the paper and, and on our website. Um, you might not be this. It might not be the same way for a regular season high school basketball game. You might spare that kid the the ignominy uh, of that moment in his his or her life. But I will tell you, just as recently as a week and a half ago, we were covering a high school baseball game, and uh, bases loaded, nobody out tie ball game two to two and the starting pitcher for a school who's gone had a terrific game uh two sacrifice bunts and a walk put this team in a a bases loaded situation nobody out tie ball game and they remove the starting pitcher and in comes the reliever and the reliever uh gets the now he's in a terrible jam right no outs bases loaded boy he's gonna he's in a terrible situation he gets the first two outs a pop up the short right field Runner holds, still tie game. A strikeout. Now we got two outs. Now he looks like he could be the hero, getting them out of this jam. Well, next batter up, he walks him on four pitches. Now he's the GOAT. Now, this was the Section 5 championship baseball game. And the fact that this young man went from hero to GOAT in a matter of seconds um, and the importance of the game, we did. I did use his name. Uh, because it was a championship game, and if the kid wiggled out of that jam and became the hero, we would have used his name. Now, in a regular season game, I, the level of importance is not as high, but, you know, one of my big proponents, one of the big themes, I guess, in my coverage over the last few years has been we need to we need to have make sure kids that they have to be accountable. They have to learn accountability, and we can't coddle our young people. So if we're going to write about you when you're the hero, you might be writing about a little bit too when you're the GOAT, mm-hmm. and – what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and I think it'll, it's just one more learning event for these kids in their young lives on how to be stronger, stronger-minded. Uh, if they have a, a setback on the field or on the court or wherever it is, uh, over, how do you overcome that? you got to have some strength, and 
I think a moment like that for the young man made him stronger on the other side. So how did you, in the moment, how did you report that and how did you write that up? You know, in the moment I was tweeting about him, right, coming in, almost getting out of the jam. So his name was already out there on my Twitter account, right? So, um, and and it didn't, you know, I, I knew it was a championship game. So I knew that hero or goat, whoever is the hero or goat in this game, I'm going to write about him. Now, again, if this is a regular season game, I might not have been that that um, overt with w- what happened. But, you know, in the, where, the way our world is, Brian, it's everyone wants to know what's happening now. So... I had no idea if this was a regular season game. Uh, you know, I, after sitting down on my laptop, would I have written the kid's name for a regular season game? Probably. Um, again, I don't think what happens in high school sports is earth-shattering. I know it's really important to the kids and the parents. And uh, But I, I hope that everyone keeps a little perspective about what's going on at this level and that uh, a win or a loss is not the end of the world. Uh, it's just part of the learning process for these kids. And, um, uh, I, again, I, I think high school sports is a great learning ground, not only for young writers, but also certainly for young athletes. And just out of curiosity, not to belabor this point, but I'm curious how that, how that story, how was that story then received after you posted it in the next day? Well, I got no emails from any angry parents. Okay. Uh, so that was good. I think, I think they understood. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't lead, you know, I, my lead wasn't that this kid became one from hero to goat in a second. Um, that was not my lead, but I definitely used his name, and it was certainly uh, within the first five paragraphs that uh, um, after retiring the first two batters and appearing like he might have gotten out of the jam, this young man walked, you know, walked in on the winning run. Right, and, um, I, and I would imagine that has a lot to do with it too, like how you write it up. Like you didn't like New York tabloid this kid to death, but you mention it, but you don't have to um, like not even not call attention to it. it's not the right phrase, but you don't have to like belabor the point or make it you know, kind of sensationalize it. But, you know, that is that line. I think you do have to mention it. Yeah. And I think I almost even used a quote from the the coach of the winning team saying, I thought we were, I thought he was going to get out of it. Hmm. Like it sounded like I thought he was going to get, I thought the opposing pitcher that ended up being the GOAT was going to get out of the jam. And I intentionally did couch that a little bit to show some sensitivity to the young man who obviously uh, didn't want it to end that way. Um but uh, so yeah, I mean, I knew going in. I mean, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write you know, a kid went from a hero to goat in a matter of seconds. Would I write that a kid that went from could have gone almost went from uh, if it was the other way around, he went from goat to potential hero? Certainly. So so say so say it was the the kid who uh, walked in the run. What if it was just a tying run? And maybe the next at bat, maybe it was just the game went on, and the kid who was potentially the, the goat for walking in the tying run hits the game-winning single, then I certainly would have went from he was nearly the GOAT and he became the hero. But I think for a teenager, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty, it would be pretty callous to call a kid a GOAT or, uh, in, in that regard. So you said something a few minutes ago that I wanted to uh, go into a little more depth on. You mentioned that in the last few years, your kind of uh, uh, general theme of your high school coverage has been accountability, especially in, in with the kids. And I wanted to, to kind of delve into that a little bit. So where did that start? Where did that come from? I think a lot of it comes from, I think we're, we're just hearing a lot from coaches and administrators about, you know, you know I, I did a story really three years ago where it came from, was where, where parents want to seem to coddle their, their kids a lot these days and want to 
insulate them from negative feedback or or criticism from coaches and and coaches can't you know old school coach to me doesn't mean bad i think today's parent now might think old school coach means too mean kind of a bully uh a little too straightforward maybe a little harsh and i I think you know i've seen a lot of adversarial relationships between parents and coaches and i think that's because coaches can't coach the way they want and I'm not saying be rough or harsh I'm just saying they can't be strict or, 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 or demanding of their kids on their teams because they're worried about parents who think they're they're being too hard on, on the, the student athletes and I think that's a problem in our world today that I think we're raising too many kids that are going to look to mom and dad to, ad, to advocate for themselves instead of going to the coach and talking to themselves first about their playing time instead of going to mom and dad and saying, can you fight this battle for me? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm wondering, and we can get into, I know uh, we talked about a story you did recently for the Democrat Chronicle on uh, a honey, the honey Oy basketball coach. Um, but I'm wondering, so you, if this is kind of your philosophy, like how does that then translate into your, how you report, how you write? Well, I, I mean, I, I, obviously you're not going to, the bigger stories I've done, we focus on issues like that you know, on a daily basis. You know, I don't think you, you, you call out coaches or, or kids or parents or athletes for not being tough enough. But I think, you know, in the, in the bigger piece, like I said, I think it was two, two, three years ago, I did this big Sunday piece on, on, uh, it was like three videos and, and a big long narrative on, on coaches and, and how coaches have needed to change. Um, and then the honey, Ice story really, you know, it's somewhat born. I mean, a coach, guy's been coaching 30 years and, and a couple letters to the school board questioning his conduct and then one inflammatory letter alleging that he had a drinking problem um, cost him his job, cost him um, his legacy uh, where he had taught, where he was an athletic director for more than 30 years. And uh, I thought that was kind of sad and I thought it was very symptomatic uh, of what's going on around the country the, I mean, athletic directors tell me, Brian, that the, the biggest headache they deal with every single day is answering parents' complaints or issues with coaches. And um, here's one that wasn't handled properly, in my opinion, down in Honeyoy, and and uh, it ended up costing these parents uh, fifty thousand dollars in a lawsuit that was uh, they were you know there was the, the the letter they wrote was deemed libelous by a court, so. It, it was a fascinating story, and I think I remember reading when the when he was first fired and y- your coverage of that, and then it, it just kind of came through the courts now. And he was uh, and he won uh, he he won the he won the fifty thousand dollars, like you said. And it, and, and it's got to be interesting for you though, in a way, because you know the parents are your primary audience. I would guess. Yeah. Right? So yep. I mean, yeah, there are, yeah. There are times when I think I'm too hard on them. Okay. And I wonder, and I say, I'll say on my radio show once in a while, like, yeah, I, I know I'm not painting your parents with a broad brush, but the ones that, you know, it's just like the, the kid in the classroom that that's going to cause waves. The bad, the bad egg is going to, is going to really stink up the joint. And, uh, you know, a parent, you know, I, I think they're, I mean, we both, we grew up playing and, and, and liking high school athletics. And I still like high school athletics. I love covering them. There's a purity and a, innocence to it that you know you can't get anywhere else really than maybe other than the olympics but you know i I think the real there's not unrealistic expectations of parents and i and i asked the new york state public high school athletic association executive director 
Robert Zayas, why he thinks it's worse now than maybe 10 years ago. So this isn't a problem. I mean, 10 years ago, parents were mad about playing time. And 20 years ago, they were mad. And 30 years ago, they were mad too. But when my dad was upset, I wasn't getting enough time. He didn't have the ability to email the coach. Mm. Um, he would have to go talk to him in person. And I think a lot of the problems stem from non, uh, you know, non, I can't say non-verbal, you know, non-verbal communication, emails and texts. Right. And, uh, I think, you know, I call them email muscles. And there are things parents would say in an email questioning a coach's strategy, you know, that, that they wouldn't say in person. Right. And I was talking to a coach just yesterday, and she said, you know, parents like – I have in my parents' meetings now when I start the season, I try to make it really clear to them that you have to understand I have the best intentions of this team. It might not always jive with what you think are the best intentions for your child, but I'm telling you, you know – we're out there to win as a varsity team. It's different for junior high and modified. But as a varsity team, we're out there to win, and we're, we have to play the best players. Now, am I going to try to be equitable in playing time? Absolutely. But I believe every player on this team has a role. And I believe whether whatever workplace you're in and whatever line of work you're in, unless you're an author sitting at home writing books all by yourself, um, you have to deal with other people and know your role and, and interpersonal interaction and communication and cooperation and uh, being on a team is a part. It's partly learning about discipline and sacrifice. I mean, these are all great lessons for young people. And I think when parents get in the way, sometimes they're not able to learn properly that way. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I can tell you, most of the coaches, 99% of the ones I meet, are all good people. You know, there are the, there are the, the few that that don't deserve their job or, and 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 should be let go. But you know, I don't think Mark Storm. I mean, I don't know how you operate for 30 years doing what he did, and then all of a sudden he's a bully and he's a mean guy mm-hmm. and because, you know, one of these parents were let into his house uh, and, and and they alleged that he got drunk at this party at his house. Uh, uh, you know, when my when I talked to a colleague about this, they said, do you think it's true that, that you think he got drunk? And I said, well, that maybe I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe it's true. I said, but, you know, I've been drunk before in my life, but it doesn't make me an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And you're there. They alleged in the letter that he was an alcoholic. And that's a pretty, pretty tough accusation and and because of a small word of mouth in a small town it led to the, him getting voted out as the basketball or the baseball coach and the basketball coach and and having to walk away from a school district that he taught him for 30 years and his, his wife still teaches it and his son still goes to school there pretty messy situation yeah. and and I'll, quite honestly brian had the, had the administration gotten a little more out in front of this and been a little bit more about let's bring in the parents and talk to them face to face instead of writing emails to them mm-hmm. I think this whole problem would have never arisen. Oh, the, you bring up such a great point. I've never thought of this before. The idea of email and texting as kind of like that um, that email muscles. I like the way you said that. You know, it gets into in, in my line of work. We talk about the online disinhibition effect, which is where you you'll say something. You, you're kind of freer to like say nasty stuff or you know act in a way that you would online that you don't and you know I, I i've certainly kind of had that moment with you know you probably had too with your daughter where something happens and your instinct is to like fire off that email and luckily you know thankfully i've had the sense or my wife has had the sense to hey let's wait calm down you're upset right now let's not hit send right now and then you usually are able to kind of calm down and then have a have a good conversation with somebody about it but i feel like and, and this can probably stretch into like interactions with readers as well but like people don't because they everything's kind of through the computer and through typing now it's a lot more you know people are empowered to to reach out to you and so they kind of do and they don't always think through consequences of it 
No, it's it's you know people just fire from the hip, and, and it's not. I mean, I, I've typed up my share of emails, I've deleted, I've 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 typed up my share of tweets that never I never hit send on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is legitimately written in language in school districts about something called the twenty four hour rule, where parents are asked to adhere to a twenty four hour rule if they're going to e- email or text a coach in regard to a playing time issue or an issue with their child. So oh, wow. I actually floated the theory last fall on the radio that. Wouldn't it be great if one school district had the guts to say, this year we're not allowing any interaction between parents and coaches via email or text. Any Anything you need to address with your child, you need to come to the school face-to-face or make a phone call. And I wonder how that would go if, if it would cause less conflict because of that, um, because of you know just being able to hear someone's voice or see their face. Um, you know, the Honeyoy situation, the parents sent an email – or let, actually it was a letter uh, in late January. And then, I mean, I, we looked at the, the emails that were coming into the school. We went back and, and, and foiled them and got them in our hands and read them. And, and then there was an email about a month later. There was an initial response to the parents from the administration, from the superintendent. Mm-hmm. And then there was a month that went by without any communication at all. Hmm. And no face-to-face, no phone call, no email, no nothing. And hmm. the parents then sent an email that said, well, maybe we, we erred in our judgment in bringing this to you. Maybe we should take this directly to the school board, Mr. Superintendent. And in a way, I read that as, well, now these parents are being bullies, right? They're bullying the, they're, they're bullying the superintendent into some sort of action. Right. But at the same time, I've talked to superintendents who say that, you know, you have to meet a, an allegation like this of drinking. You have to, to handle it right away. And Mark Storm had a great point. And again, I think who comes off worse than the parents in this whole situation is the superintendent, mm-hmm. a guy. His name's David Bills. Uh, that you know, the parents made a, a you know a emotional response and wrote that letter and sent it. Right? David Bills had months and months to handle this thing better than he did, and he didn't respond to them for a month after that initial email. Didn't bring them in. Didn't respond to them. They said, you know, what, what's going on? Is there an investigation underway? What's going on? And and uh, that was wrong. You have to I've, again. I've talked to superintendents that say you bring somebody in. There's an and you, you bring somebody in right away and you talk to them face to face. If there's mm-hmm. an allegation of something that serious, and Mark Storm had a great point when he was first called in about this, which wasn't until June. Think about that. That first letter was sent in late January, Jeez. and then the investigation went on unbeknownst to him. And again, I understand why they didn't want to make him aware of the investigation, but at the same time, the first conversation he said to, and this is a guy who's again been a teacher and administrator at times as an athletic director, he said to the superintendent, if you were investigating me and had any notion that I had a drinking problem, how did you let me coach the baseball team in March and April and May? That's a good point, yeah. So to me, it was completely bungled by the Honeywell administration. How those people still have their jobs after the stories that that were written, and and uh, I, I'm shocked. So, so I mean, you mentioned uh, you mentioned your radio show a few times. I know you do some TV in town as well. Um, I'm wondering, just in general, um, I'll, I'll, w- w- adding those and adding a lot of the stuff uh, at, at the newspaper on the, the di- on the digital side. How much and what is the big? What are the biggest changes you've seen in your job from when you started at the at the DNC like 20 years ago or whatever to now? Well, in part, it's what we're what we're doing right now. We're talking on a computer, right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking on a phone. I mean, uh, the internet certainly changed everything in regard to how this whole business operates, how the world operates. So that's you know, in a way, the internet 
if there's one thing I can point to that people say, well, obviously the, the, the newspapers are shrinking and there's fewer newspapers and there's fewer staffers at newspapers. And I say, yeah, that, that, that's true. But there are also a lot more different outlets for kids, for, for young people to get into the media business and whether it be websites and just being digital websites and not newspapers. But to me, I actually think the fatal flaw of newspapers were not charging for an online subscription back in the early 90s when they all were all rushing to get their content online because that was the new thing. Mm-hmm. That was the fatal flaw. I actually had a conversation about with Jim Baham about this once. Um, we, he asked about the, how things were in Rochester, and we, he talked about the news, we talked about the newspaper business. And I said, I think that I really think that was the fatal flaw is that we didn't start charging because then then when you want we wanted to charge, everyone thought, well, geez, I used to get this for free. And when people will, will complain now about the, the subscription rates or having to pay for a digital online subscription for our, for our product. I'll say, well, what, what did you pay for gas 20 years ago? What did you pay for cable TV 20 years ago? Everything's gone up. So now we want to charge for our content and operate more like a business, and, and you don't want to pay it. So, okay, so now it's on us to come up with the original content. But obviously the computer and the Internet changed everything. The cell phone has changed everything um, in, many, in many, many ways. Uh, it, it, early on, I loved the fact the cell phone meant I didn't have to sit at the office and wait for a phone call from a source. Right. I could go wherever I wanted, right? And um, I've done interviews on, uh, between shots on a golf course with my tape recorder in my hand and, and, and put the thing on speakerphone. So that was great. Um, but now the immediacy, everyone wants their information because everything's about the handheld and the mobile device. You know, you can't just go cover a game and try to write a really good analytic analytical story because it's tough to have that analytical eye because you're tweeting, you're shooting video. I mean, you have to be able to do – you have to be a jack-of-all-trades now. Quite mm-hmm. simply, you can't just be a great writer. You have to be able to juggle multiple projects, juggle multiple platforms. You have to be able to speak well about what you do. You can't. When, when I when I taught a sports writing class at St. John Fisher for a while, we had one class. We talked all about public speaking, and every student in the class had to come up and talk for a minute in front of everybody. And they said, well, why are we doing this? You know, I said, well, because when you can't, you're you're handed that microphone in a press conference, and there's 50 people in the press conference, you're public speaking. Right. You're able to, you better be able to have the, your, to get your nerves in order and, and be able to speak intelligently and ask that question properly and not have so many nerves run through your veins that you can't get the words out. Mm-hmm. So you need to put yourself in those, in those situations more and more so you're more comfortable. I can tell you that the last time I was at a Final Four in 2013, when I get handed the microphone, my heart palpitations get a little faster. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just nature. It's, 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 hum, it's being human. Um, but the more times you put yourself in those situations, um, you're better at them. So, you know, my advice is to do everything, try to do everything, learn everything as a young as a young journalist. Um, don't be discouraged by what's happening in the world. There are more outlets to write, you know, I mean, um, than ever before. Uh, but obviously, the, those primo jobs aren't aren't what they used to be. And and you know, I'll say this: there was a point when I was in college in the, the early '90s where I knew. I couldn't jump into a major daily newspaper in a major market out of college because they basically said you have to go away and get experience at a smaller publication. Right. That's not the case now. Hmm. Not the case. The, the 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 young woman leading our coverage of the the dirtbag at the University of Rochester that was sleeping with the professor that was sleeping with people. Mm-hmm. I don't even think I have to say allegedly, but um, she, she she's 22 years old. Jeez, wow. She just graduated from RIT. And uh, she's a fantastic reporter. 
Um, so I, a few months ago, I had uh, your former colleague Scott Petoniak on the on, 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 as as a guest, and we talked about Rochester as a sports town and as a sports market. And I've always found it to be such an interesting place. I've lived here five and a half years now, um, but I've always found it to be an interesting market because so much you know, two of the most popular teams in the market are not here. You've got the Bills in Buffalo and, as you said a few times, Syracuse in, uh, over in central New York. And, and I'm just wondering, you've been having worked here for a while. I mean, what makes Rochester a unique sports town and a sports market? That's a good question because it's really – I think it's 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 changed and it's mm-hmm. certainly take, it's, it's taken its hits in the last recent years as a unique sports market or a good sports market. I, in fact, I wrote a lead last week about the – Rochester Nighthawks indoor lacrosse team and I and I and I mentioned how you know we've lost two professional soccer teams uh to date with the Rhinos going dark for a year and certainly the Western New York Flash not seeing enough support in this town um, even though I don't think they ran their business the right way um by living in Buffalo and playing in Rochester um and and you know we lost women's professional golf so you know I think I think what makes it unique is I think it's history, and and that's that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, because I think our, we're, we're writing less history because we have less to, to cover and write about. Um, losing professional golf was a big hit to this town. Mm-hmm. And I know that we have the Symmetra Tour, the, the minor leagues of the LPGA out at Brooklyn Country Club, and I really admire the passion they have in keeping women's professional golf alive here. And I know we're going to have the senior PGA at Oak Hill in 2019 and the PGA Championship in 2023, but. You know, we hosted the, the LPGA championship for five years. We hosted an LPGA stop for, for, for 30 years. And uh, to see that go away was, you know, it's it, to me more, it speaks more about the population here than the sports fan. Okay. You know, it speaks more to the corporate base shrinking um, along with the population shrinking. Mm-hmm. And how do we keep the millennials here? So, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat sad what's become of our town. Um, we found, quite honestly, that... Our audience analyst at, at the newspaper, at the, our news organization, our, our media public, whatever you want to call us, with our <laughs> Chronicle Media, whatever we call ourselves. No, we're no longer DNC Digital. We've changed that. That branding effort didn't work. Now, it's, there were people that thought, Brian, that we actually had two companies. Oh, really? I thought that the Democrat and Chronicle split off into two companies and that somebody said to me after we, we announced uh, our new, we, had, we moved to a new building and they, they were, were calling ourselves DNC Digital because we had this new studio. Um they said, do you work for DNC Digital still or now, or do you work for Democrat Chronicle? I'm like, we're all one and the same, folks. Hmm. Um, so, so you know, the audience analysts will tell us that one reason we don't cover our local professional teams the way we used to is that we're not getting enough track or traffic on our, our stories on our website. And mm-hmm. the one flaw in that, and I've said this to my bosses, so I'm not speaking out of turn, is that you can't tell me how many people read that story in print. Right. In the print edition. So, okay, right, I get it. So only 550 people read the Rhino story online. Understood. Not a lot. But how many people picked up the paper? Was it 5,000 that read it in the paper? We don't know that. You can't track that. So to me, letting the audience drive the coverage is good and bad if you are uh, a media organization that has a print offering and an online digital uh, uh offering because you can't track the print right you can't and um so i think it's somewhat flawed in in relying completely on digital views as your driver of what you cover 
Um, um, and I don't know any other way around that. I, I do wonder, you know, if you look at it, let's put it this way, though. If you look at the stadium and there's not many people in the stands and you look on your website and not people reading your stuff, I think in that regard, one-on-one does equal three. Mm-hmm. Or two. Or two. two or <laughs> um, uh, what does equal two. And, and it took me a while for me to get there. It took me a while to believe them and say, you know what, I think you're right. The Rhinos, there really aren't as many Rhinos fans as we used to think there were. And um, uh, I could see it. If, if You know, back in the late 90s when the Rhinos were huge here, and I mean like nine to 10,000 a game uh, for four to five seasons, um, you know, we didn't have any sort of, we didn't, uh, we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't have a website that was, at the, well, at the start of it, I don't think we had, well, we did have a website for sure, but we didn't track the numbers certainly the way we do now. We didn't ha- I didn't have any idea how many views. A lot of times you gauged how popular a story was with how many comments you got. Right? right. Well, back then, my boss, he didn't. He never went to one Rhinos game. He never. He didn't like soccer, but he could look and see the numbers of the people in the stands, and he could never tell me do less because all he had to do was look at the stands. And I've always told our local, and, and, and he knew that, geez, if there's 9,000 people showing up, they got to be reading our stuff. And uh, and that was my kind of my, I kept that in my back pocket and trotted out whenever I needed to say, I want to go do this story. And he'd say, uh, and I'd go, come on, they're going to have 9,000 fans there Friday night. And he couldn't argue that point. But when the fans stopped showing up, that was one less uh, bullet in my in my in my gun to say, mm-hmm. I need to go cover this team. So, and then when the, we started tracking online views it was another one so um so i get it but uh uh i don't like it but i get it and uh and you know the nighthawks the indoor lacrosse team is, is a team it's a good example our coverage didn't meet the demand of their fan base which i think is i think they said they have what 1700 season ticket holders they average about six thousand fans a game if i got six thousand people to read every one of my local professional sports stories on our website the, the editors would say, let's do more of that. Let's cover more. That's a, that's a win. That's a win. Um, but for some reason, those Nighthawk fans are going elsewhere to get their coverage. And that's because the National Lacrosse League does a good job with their coverage. And we missed the boat on that. We didn't cover them the way they wanted and uh, the fans wanted. And they went and got their and, – and to, to the league's credit, they developed their own communications team and freelancers and do a good job. So we can't get that audience back now, I think. That's if we covered them like the Buffalo Bills, maybe we could. But um, uh, that's a team that I think has a good following still. But some of our other teams, I don't think there is a big base for the Red Wings. I don't think there's a big base for the Rhinos uh, or even the Amherst. I think a lot of the pages we get for the Amherst, I think, come from Buffalo. Right. They look at the prospects. Right. I mean, and they can track that, Brian. They can say where the where the pages are coming from. Mm-hmm. That was so, the same thing that happened when I was in Binghamton, and this is you know ten years ago, but still, so kind of not as in detail as me now. But I could tell that most of my readers, when I was covering what were then the the BMATs, were not local people coming to the games. They were people down in New York and Connecticut and Jersey who were following the prospects. And that's minor league is such an interesting thing to cover, especially when you have an affiliated minor league team, because then it's much more your your market is very different. It's not just the local market now. Now you're, you have the uh, the big league market is kind of part of yours, too. It's a really kind of weird conundrum, I think, covering minor league sports. No doubt. No doubt. And, and I think that's that's again, what I tell our pro teams is uh, put fannies in the seats. If you put fannies in the seats, then then we're going to cover you more. That's mm-hmm. kind of like people ask about the chicken and the egg. Well, that's that's really where it needs to start is is there in the seats. 
And then if we see people in the seats, we're going to cover you more. And then if that translates to more more page views, it's going to lead to more coverage. Right. Um, that's why I'm a big proponent of all these these like the, the USL, which is the Rhinos League that they're technically still in. Um, I've talked to other PR people before, and I said, you know, every story, every local writer, be it in Pittsburgh or Orlando, wherever you are, wherever market you're in, the the USL Twitter feed that has whatever eighty thousand followers, I'm not sure what it is these days. It should re just click retweet on that local to that local story, that local writer, because if if it boosts the page views, it's going to help get more coverage. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point, maybe they will analyze and go, geez, these views are coming from out of our city. But I think initially it's going to help get more coverage and maybe that more coverage will lead to uh, more people in the seats. Because I know that our local teams want more coverage because they say it helps them get attendance. And again, chicken and the egg, how, how's it going to happen? Um, so it's it's definitely an interesting time. It's, it's continued to be an evolution of the media business. It's really cool what you do. And uh, um, uh it's been, like I said, really, real interesting, uh, good and bad at times. What's the best thing you've read lately? Oh, the best thing I've read lately. I really like a lot. Of, I can't. I, a lot. Of, I do like the athletic model. I like that the, the website. The athletic is really cool. I've read a lot of really cool things on there. Uh, your boy Tyler Dunn wrote a terrific piece. Uh, uh, I think I think it was you that tweeted that. Was um, it the Jamal? Yeah, on, Jamal Lewis. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. But you know what's funny is that in this day and age, you literally need to put your phone on airplane mode to sit and read something of that kind of depth. Right. Uh, because let's face it, you're getting text messages. There's alerts. If your TV's on, if you got email popping in, and, and, and you hear the email pop in, there's so many distractions in our world. There are times when, when I think it's just tough to really just sit and dive into a good a good long piece of journalism, and I feel that's sad, but that's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's why they want some. You know, they want quick hits, and and they want you to still try to feed the beast of the long narrative and be able to do that. And that's why it's really cool. I, I kind of envy guys that are at, at a publication or a digital publication where they where they uh, can really just dive in and, and focus on. I mean, that's become Sports Illustrated now, the Bleacher Reports. I mean, that's that's where it is. Um, I mean, that's what, when you and I were growing up, we went and, and, and picked up Sports Illustrated and got to read that five or six page narrative. And now it's Bleacher Report. Um, so there was a time when I first got into this business, I used to trash TMZ, Brian. I thought it was a, a joke. Um, I thought it was just hit and run journalism. I didn't even call it journalism. It was just hit and run, look at what we got. And now TMZ has credible journalists there. Um, so, but again, chasing rumors, like there's a rumor going on right now that, um, and I, it's more than a rumor in my opinion, uh, I've done my own set of research, but there's a, it's a player from Victor high school lacrosse, a Victor graduate who, who led Albany to the final four of lacrosse. His name is TD Erlin. There are rumors that he's going to transfer to Cornell where his brother's going to go as a goalie next year. And, um, you know, we can't get anyone to go on the record to, to there's been you know reports online inside lacrosse that has piece on it. Multiple sources are saying that this is going to happen, but we have a policy where we're not going to use anonymous sources. Right. So, you know, now we've reached out to the family. They don't want to talk about it. So read into that what you will. Mm-hmm. But um, we also think though, that there are times when if we, we don't, we don't press the issue and put it out there when it's time to give that first interview that they might come to us first. 
we sure. hope that they keep that in mind. And that's been certainly communicated to them. So, um, but that's part of the, you know, that you talk about the changes in the business. Well, chasing rumors and bloggers and internet and Twitter, Twitter rumors, that's, that's certainly made journalists have to hustle a lot more. Right. Jeff, if people want to follow you and see the work you're doing, uh, what's the best place to do so? Well, democratandchronicle.com and, uh, Easiest way is to, I think, just uh, easiest way honestly, is to Google my name, I think. Okay. But uh, on Twitter, it's Rock Devo, R O C D E V O. And uh, that's really, that's really the, the conduit to me, Twitter. That's, I'm pretty active on Twitter, sharing my work. Um, it's another change in our industry. We have to be a lot more proactive. And you know, a lot of our traffic to our stories comes right from our social media. And uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's the way I would tell people is go to R O C D E V O and follow me. And uh, if you enjoyed this, I. You know, once in a while, I'll weigh in on the world of journalism and and uh, and what I what I think is responsible or irresponsible online, and usually can uh, can cause some uh, interesting uh, conversations <laughs> on Twitter. Yesterday, I I tweeted about getting spam calls on my phone that have the same area code as is where I live, and I and I think it's really annoying <laughs> that I answer the call thinking, maybe, hey, is that a coach? Maybe I don't have their phone. Is that an administrator? Somebody that's calling me. I need. Is that a source? Right. I don't have their number in my phone. I answer the call, and it's of course some recorded message saying that uh, Wyndham Resorts wants me to stay with them. So. <laughs> uh, Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it, Brian. Anytime. Thanks, buddy. As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. 